We made this. Hello and welcome to Frame to Frame, part of the We Made This podcast network. We are the podcast that take two seemingly unconnected films and slam them together like completing me and showing the money. I'm Andy Williams. I'm Sean Wilson. And this week we've got a special guest on to help us discuss Bruce Springsteen songs used in 1990s films. We've got Helen on from Flixwatcher, so welcome to the podcast, Helen. Hello, thanks for having me. Thanks very much for joining us. Tell people a little bit about Flixwatcher and where they can find you. So Flixwatcher is a weekly podcast and each podcast we have two guests and one of the guests will pick a film that can be found on Netflix. We have a little bit of a chat about it and we have a special scoring system where we all rate the film and we all have a jolly good time with it. And uh, you've both been guests on the on the pod. We have um, and it was it was great. I, I thoroughly enjoyed coming on. Um, Son yeah. of Rambo was my choice, and, and what was yours? Young Adult with Charlie. Young Strong Adult, yes, 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 yes. The Jason Reitman different one. Different films. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we go to those those disparities, those extremes, <laughs> one end of the other. Well, yeah. that's it's like frame to frame. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're used to it. Yeah. Um, people can find Flicks Watcher on or all podcasting platforms. Uh, link within the show notes as well. Um, so it's Flicks F I L X Watcher, all one word. To, to find you guys there because I think what both you and Kobe are doing uh, is fantastic podcast and it's something that I, I try to listen to every week as well so um, if you do want us back on then do let us know as well <laughs> Oh, sounds good. That, that hint that was dropped in there <laughs> with a big thump <laughs> we have had quite a lot of returning guests so um yeah we'd love you love to have you back on and as long as like netflix keeps going then you know we'll, <laughs> we'll keep going as well just if it decides to just like yeah we're not making any money we're just not going to do it anymore we might need to think of something else i think you'll be all right i think i think you'll be all right for the minute um yeah for, we'll, for the minute being the opposite <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah well we as we record this we're getting into the um the end of year um netflix period is always interesting because that's when they unleash their prestige projects like maestro we've got the bradley cooper leonard bernstein film maestro coming up soon yeah um, the killer's been released yeah yeah um so yeah anyhow um we're here to talk about bruce springsteen songs in 1990s movies and um, you can go back and listen to the shorter trail episode and it sort of explains why helen elected to bring us this theme my eyes lit up with pure joy when um when i saw that coming through so i was uh anything to talk about the boss do you remember what my reaction was i, I don't actually I'm, I'm genuinely asking <laughs> that was... equally as joyous oh. why wouldn't you the yeah yeah i'm gonna go with that and his presence makes things even better yeah <laughs> <laughs> when we did um Bruce Springsteen episode a while back with with episode twenty two a while back <laughs> yeah should go bear in yeah. mind this is episode one hundred and sixty nine yeah. um, I remember Sean you saying to me that I know Hungry Heart and that's kind of it thank you Helen thank you Helen it is a great song yes but of, um, of all the if you're gonna pick one Bruce Springsteen song to know Hungry Hearts a strange I'm, one I'm nothing if not idiosyncratic <laughs> yeah. yeah this is true so as we usually do with a guest uh, we allow them to take the brains of uh, the the plot synopsis of one of the two movies and we always go in chronological order because Sean's brain likes it that way so, Helen, 
you have been assigned by Sean, the uh, very, very <laughs> cruelly, the, uh, the plot synopsis for Philadelphia. So tell us a little bit about the plot of Philadelphia. Philadelphia. So Tom Hanks is Andy Beckett. He's a very senior uh, lawyer in a corporate law firm in Philadelphia. He's uh, been concealing that he is gay and uh, he is an AIDS patient. When one of the partners happens to notice one of the lesions on his forehead, things sort of change a little bit and suddenly he goes from sort of being the top lawyer to um, being asked to leave his office. There's a um, a court case where a document goes missing, uh, which he manages to sort out, but it's a little bit suspicious that this document's gone missing. Afterwards, he's fired. He believes that his aid status, had his sexuality had caused him to be fired. He approaches several lawyers to take on his case and no one wants to get involved. And it's only after he approaches Denzel Washington's lawyer, who is called Joe, who will take on his case. And uh, it's a fairly kind of like standard court sort of case drama from there. But um, there's also different characters are, are brought in and you get to find out a little bit more about Andy's life. And Joe kind of like changes in his position um, a little bit. He's very kind of like anti-gay people to begin with. And he sort of warms to Andy a little bit. So um, that is Philadelphia. Mm, it is. Um Sean, what do you make of the movie? Well, the first thing to say is that um, this was the first mainstream Hollywood movie to tackle the AIDS crisis. So I think for that reason, it goes down in history as an incredibly important piece of work. And obviously directed by Jonathan Demme immediately in the wake of his barnstorming Oscar winning success with The Silence of the Lambs, which was 1991. Mm-hmm. And yeah, Jonathan Demme had a um, um, blessing. He passed away in 2017. He was a really interesting director. He came off largely comedies in the 1980s, largely known as a comedy director. And then obviously he made the um, Stop Making Sense, the Talking Heads concert film, which is regarded by many to be the greatest concert film of all time. Um, evidently a director who knew a thing or two uh, about the use of um, needle drops and pop music in films, which ties into our um, our theme here as related to Philadelphia. Mm. Um, I think Philadelphia is an interesting case because, as I said, industrially, it's an incredibly important movie. As I said, first mainstream Hollywood movie to tackle AIDS. Um, it was the movie that arguably manoeuvred Tom Hanks from being a largely comic actor into being pretty much a, a dramatic actor who occasionally did comedy afterwards. Um, got Tom Hanks's first Oscar. The year after this, he won another Oscar for Forrest Gump. I think industrially, it's a very, very important movie. And I think one would have... have I'm waiting have... for the come down. I'm really <laughs> waiting for the well, come down here. One would have to have a heart of stone not to be moved by it because it it, it is evidently the reason why the movie was as successful as it was because it was it's a universal story and at the time it tapped into something that most hollywood studios didn't dare go anywhere near um i do think as a piece of dramatic construction it's earnest and occasionally overwrought and clunky but i think that's more a function of this was a Hollywood movie attempting to figure out how to deal with the subject matter. That's me adopting a modern lens there, putting a modern lens on it. I think back in the 90s, no one would have thought that because no movie had really done this before. No no dramatised, big dramatised movie had done this before. So I think it's important to state I'm seeing that from a 2023 point of view. But 
that's my broad thought. So, Andy, what, what do you think of it? So, this was my first time watching it. I'm obviously familiar with the the Bruce song. So, when like when the movie starts and you get the full song of, of Streets of Philadelphia, uh, that brought a smile to my face immediately. And from there onwards, it, it gets on with telling its story. And I think that what Demi manages to do is he brings a real sensitivity and, you said, a universality to what, at the time, hadn't ever been tackled before. So having it as, as you know, it's, it's about a number of things. It's about uh, Andy having HIV. It's about Andy's sexuality. It's about Andy being fired. But it's also about Joe and his preconceptions. And it's about the preconceptions of the jury and everyone else. Like, there's a point where where Denzel Washington's joke goes up to the, the jury and says, like, I feel the same as you do, assuming that everyone feels the same as he does, which in and of itself says an awful lot about the time in which the time and place in which this is set. And I think that what what Demi and the screenplay by Ron Nicewanner, who was an openly gay man, um, I think that there's a real sensitivity and, and universality into uh, what is well, what could be seen as quite a divisive story. So from an industrial perspective, I agree with you, but also from a dramatic level, I thought it worked. Like, when the final scenes roll around, um, yeah, it, I was I was feeling what it was supposed to make me feel. So I think that it, it still works and holds up as a piece of drama as well. Well, Helen, what what do you we, we we've said our piece. What 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 do you make of the movie as as a, as a drama and as a moment in Hollywood history? Yeah, it's quite interesting because obviously it's really trying to kind of like mean well and how America responded to the the AIDS pandemic in the eighties was horrific, but it, it it has got that very much like not many gay people were involved in kind of doing this because the relationship between Andy and his boyfriend played by Antonio Banderas is very, you know, they kind of like get a kiss on the head, but there's nothing really, nothing else physical. And it's, it's very like, we're not really sure what what we're doing. We don't want to show too much. We don't want to offend too many people still. So there's, there's, there's that element going on. Um, But it's, it's one of those really interesting ones as well, where it's, it's not a true story, but it's kind of been drawn from a couple of people's life story and it has that kind of feel. And I think when I was watching it this time around, I was kind of like expecting the the true story bit to come out at the end and it didn't happen. And I was like, oh, I thought it was a mm. true story. And then kind of read and it's like, oh, it's based on um, a few stories kind of put together. So it's kind of got that bit where they've taken real people's lives and kind of, you know, made it a little bit more jazzy for the for the cinema absolutely so it, it is it is very 90s in its kind of structure and um you know there's a start a middle and an end and it's you know courtroom drama so there's lots of kind of big speeches and kind of you know moments where you're like looking into people's eyes and things like that and it's all very serious but I think it still hand, holds up and I think um you know Denzel Washington is brilliant in this he's brilliant in a lot of things but I think it's, it's I don't think Denzel Washington together. is ever less than brilliant, is he? <laughs> Not even when he phones it in, he's still like a million times mm. better. But I think it's their relationship as well that really kind of like grows throughout the film. Um, mm. And he gets to kind of, I don't know whether he completely overcomes his like homophobia, but you can kind of see that he's he's seeing things in a different way by the end of it. He certainly sees the man. He certainly sees Andy 
by the end of it. Whether he's viewing uh, homosexuality in a completely different light is still, I think, up in the air. But he's certainly seeing the person that he's dealt with or the people that he's dealt with um, in, in a different light. Uh, Tom Hanks said recently that this movie wouldn't get made now because Tom Hanks played the lead character and he is not a gay man. What do you guys make of, of his reaction to that? I certainly think there's more sensitivity now. I think I think there's more of an awareness of inclusivity to um, the diaspora of of cultures and backgrounds. Obviously, we're we're now in a in a in a society uh, where it's mu- one is much more conscious about people of certain ethnicities or certain backgrounds portraying other ethnicities and backgrounds. So I, I am inclined to agree with him. I mean, we're we're in a very very different age now where people are much more hyper aware online on social media about how movies are made and who's being cast in it and i do think that yeah i think were they to cast um a straight actor in a role as, as a gay man i think the i think the filmmakers would be castigated i mean whether that would result in enough pressure to get said actor removed from the film it's probably not unlikely um but yeah i i think it's interesting i mean to just to go back to denzel washington i think in many ways i think denzel washington has the harder role in this yeah because agreed. the the evolution of his character is it has to be much more fine-grained and and more subtle and you look at the, the the nuances of his performance when andy first comes into his office and he tells joe I have AIDS and look at the way that Denzel Washington after shaking his hand kind of looks at his hand and he's observing the way that Andy is touching mm. things in his office and that that and the way that Denzel Washington sketches out the portrayal of a, you know a lawyer a family man who loves his wife and he has a new baby but he has these ingrained prejudices um that coexist alongside his more benevolent qualities well, like preconceptions yeah that that is exceptionally well done and the idea that even you know your your average white collar worker the, these these prejudices and these hatreds will just bubble up um and in order in order to overcome that joe has to really bond with andy i think i think Denzel washington portrays that magnificently well and it's a hard thing to do you know you are mm. seeing an a, a psychological evolution of a character whereas what tom hanks's character goes through andy i think is more of a obviously more of a, 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 a physical decline match with the, with the spiritual strength, I think. Well, you, you've mentioned people being aware of different backgrounds and things like that. What do you make of the fact of, of Denzel Washington's ethnicity in this? Because I think it's a key factor. For, for me, when I was watching it, I was very aware of the fact that I was watching an African-American and a homosexual man beginning to, to form a, a friendship. Do you think that played into his his casting at all? Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because I think, particularly among the black community, I think it's quite hard to come out as being gay. I mean, there's a lot of homophobia from everyone, but I I feel that you know it's quite difficult f- for men who are black to come out, especially you know like sports players, because I think he bumps into a sports player, doesn't he? In the um... yeah. And I think that interaction that they have between them just gives a lot of insight in how he he assumes that because he's representing Andy, that he is gay and he's not. And his reaction to him assuming that he's gay is to respond with 
physical violence. Yeah. Yes. And I think that kind of some it says more in that interaction about attitudes in that particular era um, f- for men, um, for black men, for people working in sport, and, and mm. just kind of generally in that. And it's kind of weird that like this, if this wasn't such an incredibly serious kind of subject, it would kind of like be an odd couple kind of like buddy comedy with the pairing but it's clearly not because obviously it's a really serious subject so yeah again I kind of like because my head was like this is based on a real story I just assumed that these were like based on the real people but it may just be a little bit of like clever casting on that but yeah Mm. I think it's it's that interaction between Denzel and the the sports person that I think is really sticks in my my mind watching it this time around there's the scene um i mean the the subtleties in denzel washington's performance are absolutely brilliant there's the scene after he's initially rebuffed andy but he takes on his case later on he initially rebuffs him and he says how many lawyers did you go to before you came to me and he said nine so so joe knows that he's that he's, he's kind of bottom of the pile but there's the scene um slightly later on as as Andy is physically declining when they both happen, both he and Joe happen to be in the library at the same time. Joe is not on his case at that point, but Joe, you know, there, there's a, there's a look that I think the librarian gives him as, as a black man in, in a library. And I think mm. it, I got the impression that in that moment, Joe as a person of color who experiences prejudice and discrimination on a day by day basis, it clicks, it kind of clicks from, Oh, you know, discrimination goes both ways. Discrimination goes to me. I've extended discrimination towards Tom Hanks's character, Andy. And I think you do get that kind of Damascene awakening in Denzel Washington's character. It comes on in increments. Um, and he, in that library scene, he then sees how appallingly, Andy, who's sitting opposite, is treated by the librarian. The librarian says, would you rather go and sit in a private room? And, and Andy's like, no, I'm quite happy here, thank you. Would you rather me go and sit in a, a private room? Yeah, yeah, and he calls the librarian out on it, and the librarian doesn't dare say anything, but that latent homophobia, I think what that's what, what the movie does rather well is it the principles of homophobia and racism both come from the same thing, which is fear. Yes. And I think the movie observes that very well for me, I yes. think. Let's move to the boss of it all, because you know this. This came as a we mentioned in the the trailer episode. It's a very strange time in in Bruce Springsteen's career. Both of these um th- these films kind of did. They were so in between the the two songs that are featured in in both movies. There was the the Ghost of Tom Joad album, which was released in '95, which was I think it's famously been called the Shushing Tour. Because it was heard about this, yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was um, Bruce's tour where he was playing acoustically, and very often crowds would go along and expect uh, a Bruce Springsteen concert and get an acoustic concert. So he'd shush everybody. So Bruce had undergone uh, a very big change since the the heady days of, you know, Dancing in the Dark, Born in the USA. That the eighties, I mean, seventies were sort of struggling rock musician and uh, then when we get to to the mid 80s that's when we had and you know i'm going to skip over nebraska because it's an outlier but when you get to the mid 80s you, you had stadium rock you had born in the usa which a lot of people misinterpreted and then you know he, he broke up with the east street band after born with the usa dismissed them from duties and you know it, it seemed like that was that 
he, he wasn't going to go back to that and this was the the new Bruce and he was then asked to to write and, and create the song for Philadelphia what do you guys make of the song I love this song like the mo- moment it comes in like you don't have to wait until the end credits for this it's it's right at the start and I think it really takes you straight into that kind of feeling of being like downtrodden kind of ignored on the out you know being an outlier really really kind of like struggling against everything and just kind of feeling that everything is against you even though you're kind of like walking these streets that are really familiar and maybe walking past people that you know but you're being ignored and I just think it just really really sets the tone of the film it just you know, those few minutes of the song. And I just think it's a really, really powerful way to open your film. And I kind of like get the goosebumps that you get with a good song when I listen to this. So, yeah, I, I just think it's it's definitely like worth all of the, you know, it won the Grammy, it won the, the Academy Award, it won the Golden Globe. Like for a song from a film, I think it's probably like up there with like, you know, one of the best all times for me. I, I I do really really love the song again. I, as I said on the trail episode, I'm not a Bruce advocate like like you guys are, but it is it is a very very melancholy, very evocative song. And evidently, when you put it in the hands of somebody like Jonathan Demi, Jonathan Demi knows how to use pop music and rock music in films. I totally agree with you, Helen. That a lazy director would have just had Bruce Springsteen propping up the end credits. Jonathan Demi puts it right at the start. So you can't, you know, you're not, you're not going to walk out of the cinema ignoring it. You know, Bruce Springsteen is the voice of the film from the opening frames. And evidently what you get is you get a, a visual montage through the blue collar Philadelphia streets, which is evidently, you know, Bruce Springsteen's bread and butter, um, those kind of environments. And so you've got absolute synergy between director and musician. And that's what that's what you want. That's the way that's the way I want music to be used in films. I mean, say what you will about Quentin Tarantino. And I know at least one of us um, has got strong opinions about Quentin Tarantino. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's it's not me. Um, (laughs) But what I love about Tarantino is that he doesn't cut and chop songs. He likes he lets songs almost play through in their entirety. He kind of works the scenes around the songs. And I really like that about Tarantino in his best work. And I think that's what Jonathan Demi does in a lot of his films. And that's what he does here. And I, I, I really admire that. I really like the way he allows Bruce Springsteen's music to set out the stall of the film. Well, I think when Bruce is at his best, he's the voice of the, the voiceless. He is the voice of the common person. And that's what he brings to, to Streets of Philadelphia, is that this is who we are and this is where we are and and we are here, so please don't ignore us. And that's kind of the message of the song from, from what I can gather. And bringing that forward into the film, when it, we're talking about a film all about preconceptions and all about discrimination i think that it's for me i i'm more inclined to to agree with helen in that it's one of the best songs written directly for a movie that i can think of because it gets the undertone of the film while still being very much within the voice of his artist like this is this is a bruce springsteen song first and the song from philadelphia second which is why i think it works yeah, I mean, one has to credit Jonathan Demi as well for having the intuition of realising that. Jonathan Demi could have picked anybody to do a song for this, but he alighted on Bruce Springsteen and it was absolutely the perfect choice. And that's because Jonathan Demi understood how to use music. And it's not just about 
laying down an underscore or laying down lazily like right that needle drop will go in there right that song can come into that scene over there or we'll have five bars of that song over there like jonathan demi wasn't lazy or sloppy like that like so many filmmakers are when they use music there there was there was always something really considered um and going into to that aspect of it is the the scene where andy's listening to opera when he's he's much sicker later on in the film and jonathan demi allows uh, Andy's character to 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 really feel that music. Maria um, Callas. It's Maria Callas that he's listening to, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Um, yes. Um, what do you make of that scene? I mean, it's that scene is very nineties. Yeah. Think. It's one of those ones where it's like we really want you to get that the character is feeling this thing, but we're <laughs> going to do it through music. And if like we weren't quite sure that's where we were going to get to then we're going to like make it really, really obvious in case you weren't sure, because like what they're singing and the music and what it represents is how they're feeling inside. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Extreme close-ups. Like, yeah, it's, um, but you know, that that's what people did in the nineties. You know, that's, yeah. that's how it worked. Um, stark lighting as well. Yes. <laughs> it's a different way of using music and you know, you're, meant to be kind of like feeling how Andy's feeling through music (laughs) yeah I I thought it was unbelievably bombastic and it's probably the weakest (laughs) scene in the film I think you one could quite easily take that sequence out and the film wouldn't wouldn't suffer Uh, I think that yeah it's almost like he's homosexual but he's human as well it's like well we kind of know that (laughs) because Tom Hanks's performance is strong enough to have communicated that already and evidently I think there's a scene earlier on where um, Hanks and Antonio Banderas are sharing a domestic scene. I think the marriage of Figaro, which later turned up in Shawshank Redemption, I think that's playing in the background. So it's like, yeah, we kind of got the implicit sense of opera playing in the background of a lot of Andy's scenes. We don't need it foregrounded in this kind of earnest, clunky way. I mean, I've got a real problem with earnestness. Um, he's he's often... cultured and gay. He likes opera. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And you can just see those bo- that, that that sound you can hear is the sound of a pencil ticking a box. You know, it's just uh, you know, I yeah, I you know, it, that's clumsy. That scene, <laughs> I think it's yes. But when when talking about, I think how how Demi uses music, I think it, it's important to bring it up. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, of course it is. I mean, how we've got to mention his collaboration with Howard Shaw. Um, Tell who... us about Howard Shaw uh tell us about how you're all right then um so yeah um just a couple of years earlier they'd collaborated to spine tingling effect on science of the lambs but that was obviously a very very doer very morbid very dark score given the subject matter and but it's interesting that you can still hear the same density of orchestration and composition in the score of philadelphia it's got a very you know it's got a very almost like not dirge-like feel to it, but Howard Shaw's got a very, very specific register to his music. It's got a very, you know, there's a very like full sound. It's, it's quite hard to describe if, if because I'm because I'm not a musician. But well, if, I think that for for people that may not be aware, he did the Lord of the Rings trilogy and the the three Hobbit movies as well. Yes, so he's, he did. He's, yeah, he's, he's done he's all very sorts. Full, yeah, he's a very full-blooded uh, composer. Yeah, I mean, this was in his pre-Lord of the Rings days and when he was using, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on um, the orchestra playing in the lower registers, playing in the minor key, except in this instance, the minor key is used for a sense of melancholy and tragedy, whereas in Science of the Lambs, it was used for a sense of dreadful apprehension and horror. But evidently, the score for Philadelphia does build to a more triumphal 
tone in the way that Science of the Lambs didn't. Um, him and he and Jonathan Demi were brilliant collaborators. I think these were the only two movies they worked on together. Um, and I think the score is used very, very well. I think one of the great things about the score is, unlike the opera sequence, the score, Howard Shaw's music, is not mawkish. Um, mm. I think it's very, very rigorously controlled and it doesn't become sentimental, even as you get through to the, you know, the triumphal valedictory closing moments in the courtroom because we all know that courtroom scenes are, are right with potential for a sort of big brassy fanfare and percussion and this movie just about skirts away from that with it with its score by Howard Shore I think did you have you interviewed him uh, have I yeah I have <laughs> so um <laughs> Yeah. yeah, we go. <laughs> um, I, I thought you were going to give me another sound effect there. You're not going to give me a gold star for interviewing composer Lord of the Rings. Thank you. <laughs> so, Have um, your gold star. <laughs> thank you. Uh, yeah, he was great. Um, he talked a lot about the importance of spotting uh, the location of music in the edit, um, entry and exit points of music in a scene. He said absolutely pivotal. And mm-hmm. I think Jonathan Demi, on the basis of his two collaborations with Howard Shaw, understood that brilliantly. Absolutely. Um, so Helen what are your final thoughts I guess on Philadelphia and, and I guess where it fits into to Bruce's career yeah I think it's a very important film and I think there, there's some issues with it watching it now but it as we've talked about it was kind of the first film to really address straight up homophobia and to look at AIDS and look at it from a kind of like a different way and I think I think for Bruce, maybe it probably kind of revitalized him a little bit because after this period, um, he kind of had like a little bit of a revival. And that was kind of the time that I really got into him as well. And I think it just shows how when you kind of pick the right kind of artist and they get the memo that music can be an extremely powerful thing in a film and maybe even the song has kind of like outlasted the film a little bit because most people probably know the film sorry know the song but maybe have not seen the film so yeah I think it's it's like one of those perfect combinations really Mm, I agree Sean what's your final thoughts on on Philadelphia and uh Streets of Philadelphia yeah, I, I concur with Helen that it is, it is broadly a powerful movie. And what once one gets to the conclusion, it's very, very hard not to be moved. Evidently, it, it touches on a on a very, very relatable um, series of human concerns, and the acting is impeccable. We haven't really mentioned Tom Hanks, and Tom Hanks is it is a subtle performance, with the exception of the opera sequence. There is not a lot of grandstanding in Hanks's performance, and I think that's entirely to his credit. And as I, as we said at the beginning, it got him his first Oscar. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that it is full of those Jonathan Demi flourishes. The idea of the subjective um, close-up of, of the actor talking into the camera as if they're talking directly to us, which he deployed in Science of the Lambs, but that's used here almost as a plea for acceptance and tolerance, whereas in Science of the Lambs, it was used for more horrific, suspenseful effect. Um, so Demi's signature is on it. I think it was clearly an exploratory film in terms of its subject matter, as evidenced by the fact that a lot of sequences in it are quite ham-fisted. And, but I think that's more indicative of when it was made. I think the fact that it was made at all is incredibly admirable. And it it is it is very very well made on a on a technical level. I think Denzel Washington is brilliant. 
and he deserves just as much acclaim as Tom Hanks, even though Washington wasn't even Oscar nominated for it. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's 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 an important and it's and it's a resonant piece of work, and I think that all all the performances are superb. And I think that again to foreground Bruce Springsteen at the beginning, so you are compelled to listen to the song because it is in the opening sequence. That that is a masterstroke. I think that is the way that music should be used in a film when you've got an artist as noted as that. Mm-hmm. I agree. It was um, nominated for five Oscars, two within the same category. Um, the the other song that was written for the movie was uh, Philadelphia by Neil Young, and Bruce ended up winning that Oscar. Uh, it was also nominated for Best Makeup and the Best Screenplay Written Directly for the Screen, uh, and it won, as we mentioned, the uh, Oscar for Tom Hanks in Best Lead Actor. It was budgeted at $26 million, and it took $206.7 million at the box office. It wasn't without its controversy. There was um, an investigation and a lawsuit by uh, a family who felt that there was uh, a lot of the film that had been uh, taken directly from the story of their uh, sadly passed away uh, family member. And whilst it was the, the lawsuit itself was settled... The defendant did admit that the film was inspired in part by the story. We're just going to take a short break, and when we return, we'll be discussing Jerry Maguire. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We're going to move forward a couple of years now. We're going to move into 1996, into the realms of Cameron Crowe, who is using Tom Cruise as a sports agent. So, Sean, you're going to tell us a little bit about Jerry Maguire. Yeah, so written and directed by Cameron Crowe um, before he went off the deep end and into nonsense like Elizabeth Town and Aloha, both of which are absolutely ghastly. Um, so this was back Did when... Did you Cam- say the word ghastly? Ghastly, yeah, yeah. Okay. Ghastly, ghastly, darling. Um, yeah, I need to use that more often. I need to use it with that, with that, with that inflection as well. <laughs> but, Would you say Vanilla Sky was the turning point of that, though? Uh, I, I don't mind Vanilla Sky. I like Vanilla Sky. Okay. Yeah. It, I'll get back in my box then. <laughs> <laughs> you get back in there, we'll lock it. <laughs> it's not Abre Los Hoyos. We haven't got my thoughts on Jerry Maguire yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not Abre Los Hoyos, the, the Alejandro Amenabar original, but I think the leather sky is, is fine. But Cameron Crowe, like Jonathan Demme, um, to, to tie in with the theme of, of this episode, is blimey is he a director who knows how to use music because Cameron Crowe was a was a music journalist for Rolling Stone which he then parlayed those experiences into Almost Famous which is a fabulous film Almost Famous is fantastic that was Cameron Crowe's last great film I would say Almost Famous um we're gonna have which to do that the, one the one directly after Jerry Maguire yeah it was yeah and and that's a terrific movie and obviously other credits for Cameron Crowe the script for Fast Times at Ridgemont High say anything which is terrific uh singles. most famous for john cusack holding the radio above his head yeah peter gabriel on the boombox. yeah so so cameron crowe has got a deep-seated understanding of music as an idiom and music as it as it is transmitted in another medium which is film 
So um, in Jerry Maguire, yeah, as you said, it stars Tom Cruise as the eponymous Jerry Maguire, who is a, a at the beginning um, a somewhat vacuous and amoral um, sports agent who essentially experiences an epiphany. He experiences a, a crisis, crisis of conscience because a, um, a a hockey player's son tells him effectively to go stuff himself because he sees right through how vapid and empty Jerry's words are. And then all of a sudden Jerry wakes up, he thinks, hang on, what what do I stand for? What have I been standing for in this world of, you know, this very quite sleazy underhand world of, of, of sports 90s yuppies. Yeah. 90s yuppies, yeah. And effectively what Jerry then does is he prints a mission statement effectively coming clean to um the people in his company in a very very underhand way they all glad hand him and they all applaud him for being um honest and then behind the scenes like how long is he gonna last we're gonna give him about a week and so jerry's colleagues know that he's for the chop because this is not absolutely not the done thing so how can you possibly show loyalty for this kind of business if you basically kind of come clean like this and what then happens is that Jerry's um, clients, uh, his his colleagues turn their back on him and his clients start leaving him one by one. His, his very, very sports clients all start leaving him. And then this culminates in what is probably the film's most um, famous scene um, where he, Jerry... In absolute, second uh, famous scene. Second <laughs> famous scene. I think the most famous is You Had Me at Hello. Oh, OK, fair enough. Uh, well, yeah, OK, yeah. And... Um, basically the only person that jerry has got left on his books while he's bartering for client services with a a rival agent played by jay moore the only person left on jerry's books is um arizona cardinals receiver rod tidwell played in oscar-winning form by cuba gooding jr who is absolutely tremendous in the movie and this obviously results in the um, there's a running thing throughout the movie starting in this scene that Rods is able to break down Jerry's boundaries and he's able to get him to speak honestly in a way that Jerry has never really spoken honestly in his life because of the whole thing about Jerry's um, lifestyle and the job to which he's attached is everyone speaks euphemistically, everyone speaks in half-truths, everyone speaks this kind of very vapid kind of empty language where there is like no value in... in well, it's all about uh, glad-handing and contracts and Rods has got this particular ability to kind of break Jerry down to like the very essential. It's like, come on, stop kidding me, stop kidding, Jerry. Show me the money. I want to hear you say, I want you to say, show me the money. Because Rod knows that in Jerry's world, it's all about the money. And Jerry, of course, is low to admit that. But then you could get you get the show me the money. Show me the money. Show me the money. I love black people. <laughs> and, I'm going to uh, isolate that bit and use it as a soundbite in future. <laughs> yeah and and then jerry he he goes off on his own but he he goes off on his own with um the one person who is who is willing to go with him uh who is um single mother dorothy played by renelle zellweger she is the only person who admires jerry for going through what what he's what he's going through he vows to go and set up, set up his own business with rod being his sole client and dorothy being the only person from his company who works for him and this crisis of conscience then evolves and you get an evolution of Jerry's character. Can one turn from a fairly narcissistic, empty-headed sports agent into someone 
who is capable of love and empathy, can Jerry make connections, actual proper deep-seated connections beyond financial gain with people like Dorothy and, and Rod? And what you get, I think, is a very, very beautiful, very funny and very believable evolution of a character. I mean, all, then all the characters evolve, I think, really, really well in this movie, but centrally Jerry Maguire. But um, I'll hand it over to you guys now because I'm really curious to know how this is going to go down uh-huh. all these years on. So, well, Helen, you, you mentioned this being one of the movies that you had on videotape and went back to an awful lot. Um, how do you feel watching it this time? It's, it's an interesting film. I'm not really sure what it's about because on one hand, it's kind of a sports movie. And then the other hand, it's just kind of a Tom Cruise vehicle. And then the other hand, it's kind of this weird romantic drama between a, a single mother and her child who's called Ray. This is a small person called Ray. <laughs> it's very weird. <laughs> um, it was the 90s. <laughs> well, yeah, you look at his hair. It was definitely the 90s. <laughs> Who knows loads of weird facts about the human head weighing is it nine pounds or something but, and, and then... he's played by jonathan lipnicki by the way who's in Stuart little yes um and he's brilliant he's brilliant in this he's very sweet his scenes um... with tom cruise are absolutely i mean they must have been improvised i think they were but they're absolutely hilarious and they're really charming yeah. And it's 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 kind of one of those films that has stayed in the kind of the the popular culture for show me the money and then also um Austin Powers. Uh, <laughs> I'm so uh, glad you brought that up. <laughs> because there's a, there's a bit where uh, Jerry and Dorothy are in the lift and a couple get in and I think the, the woman signs something to the man and she understands it and says, oh, it just says, you complete me. And obviously in <laughs> Austin Powers, there's a little scene between Austin um doctor what's his name dr evil dr. yeah and the dr. president evil, yeah. dr evil and mini me where they do this thing where you complete me mini me so it's <laughs> it's kind of entered different layers of, of popular culture yeah it's it's very 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 90s in <laughs> kind of the way that it's edited and tom cruise tom cruise's face is everywhere um <laughs> <laughs> including I, I, on the poster it's just tom cruise just in profile tom face, yeah and i was watching it and so secret garden features as kind of like the love arc so it first enters when dorothy realizes mm. that jerry genuinely loves ray this is the bruce song that we've used for the movie yeah secret garden and then it kind of has a reprise much later on after they've gone through a bit of turmoil and they realize that actually you had me at hello which is the the other bit and um yeah i was thinking do i really really like this film or do i just really really like hearing secret garden and whether it was like (laughs) do i put this film on because i just want to hear secret garden or do i really like it and i'm not quite sure so i I do enjoy watching it but watching it now it's a bit like it's, it's kind of interesting and there's this whole thing how they they get married like really 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 soon yeah. and in a weird sort of turn they watch the wedding video with all of their guests immediately after the wedding and it's clear <laughs> yeah. that tom cruise is not having a good time at the wedding and it's just like oh yeah that was kind of like a a plot thing in the 90s where people would get married and then instantly regret it and it would be completely <laughs> normal. 
<laughs> yeah. So it's, there's, there's, there's lots of things going on that are very, very 90s. I still think it's there's a lot of fun in it, but I, yeah, it's a bit of a strange one, I think. I don't think it would get made now because people would be like, but is it a sports movie? But is it a romantic comedy? Is it a Tom Cruise movie? You need to pick one of them and work with it because you've got all these three going on. Can I just say, just before you jump in, Andy, the whole Doctor Evil um, thing in Austin Powers, when you know he he zaps back to nineteen sixties and he ends up quoting it to the president played by Tim Robbins, like, "Show me the money, show me the money." You had me hello, tear, nothing, no. And then Scott goes, "It's nineteen sixty nine. Jerry Maguire won't come out, come out for another thirty years. No one knows what you're talking about, ass." <laughs> it's just like, yeah, I think it that was might... funny at the time for everyone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that might have been how I first heard about Jerry Maguire through Austin Powers, actually. That might have been the second Austin Powers film, wasn't it? Yeah, it might have been how I, how I first heard about it, but yeah. Well, so this was my first time watching it, and I'm going to echo basically what Helen's just said, which is, what what is it? What, like, <laughs> it, it needs to pick what it is and go with it, because I of everything that I thought it might be and one of the, like the reasons that I never watched it it's exactly what it was it was Tom Cruise being he's trying to play a human being but ends up <laughs> looking like a psychopath there's some very strange sex in this film like, he, he, it's very yeah. clear that Tom Cruise <laughs> not quite sure what it is and like this is not it but it's <laughs> very entertaining <laughs> well and then, like, so I wouldn't necessarily rush to go back and watch the movie. But then when we were talking about the Bruce Springsteen song, and as we know, I'm a card-carrying member of the Bruce Springsteen fan club, I think that Secret Garden sounds like somebody has heard Bruce Springsteen and run it through an AI generator, <laughs> and this is what they think a Bruce Springsteen song sounds like. What, like Chat GPT, but Bruce Springsteen? Yeah, <laughs> like the opening lyrics. I think the third line, uh, the, the, the second line is like, if you come knocking at night, she'll let you in her mouth if the words you say are right. That's the weirdest, <laughs> oddest way of describing kissing ever. <laughs> I mean, we, we think it, this song was possibly an outtake from... Human Touch and Lucky Town, which is which makes sense. Not saying much. Well, this is the thing, and this sort of two of the worst regarded Bruce albums, and you know, I, I, I'm very reluctant to say something negative about the boss, but (laughs) I'm going to anyway. I don't like the song. I just I think it's lazy. I think the instrumentation is very predictable. It sounds like it was. Um, it, it, it just sounds like he ran something through a synthesizer and pressed a few buttons and went, yep, that's what I want it to sound like. Even, and I love Clarence Clement, but even the sax solo, it sounds like Clarence in first gear. And if you've got, if you've got a Ferrari or the, then you're not, you're not going to keep it in first gear. You want to take it out. You want to take it for a spin. You'll and, burn through the clutch. You will. Well, look at you knowing how to drive. <laughs> Yeah. Should wait and see what I've got saying in my defence of Bruce in a minute, but go on. <laughs> so I, I find the song very lyrically confusing, instrumentally lazy, and it, it, most egregiously it misuses Clarence Clement. So, I, yeah, I don't really like the song. I don't really like the movie. I thought that, you know, yeah, okay, Cuba Gooden Jr. is great in it. 
Uh, I think there is as much chemistry as anyone can have with Tom Cruise. In <laughs> Sean and I were in a car before, and uh, I said that Tom Cruise was would never play a romantic lead. And the taxi driver bit back with Jerry Maguire. Yeah, and, and he was me, right. And me having not watched Jerry Maguire at that point, I just kind of shut up. But... <laughs> I th- <laughs> you I wouldn't think know. <laughs> I think it's all Renee Zellweger. I think that she would get just as much chemistry with a plank of wood as she gets out of Tom Cruise here, because it's, it, it's it all her. It's a, it is a romantic love story, but it's Tom Cruise in love with himself. <laughs> <laughs> She's Whoa. just incidental. I'm going to have to come out <laughs> swinging for this movie because I because I really really like it and I like Secret Garden as well. But again, maybe it helps that I'm not a card carrying member of the Bruce Collective in that. It sense. also might help that so, you like the Secret Garden, which you're incorrect about as well. Well, maybe that's it. Maybe I was just thinking of the Secret Garden and uh, that kind of blinded me to the imperfections in the song. But I. I... I, I I like that song. I like I like the kind of Angelo Badlamenti style synth underneath it. I love the way that Cameron Crowe bifurcates it. You know, he plays about 30, 40 seconds of it when uh, Jerry and Dorothy go out on their first date. <laughs> then he brings it back later on. So I, I I like the way the directors do that. Again, not not too dissimilar to what Jonathan Demme does with music. I like this film. I think well, we've spoken about this before, haven't we? But there's a very calculated side to Tom Cruise. I think that's the word I would use. Calculated and calculating. Psychopathic? Um, maybe. I I I buy him as this character. I, think I don't. That, don't At you? all. No. I, no. I, I mean, come on. When, I, don't, when... I don't ever buy Tom Cruise as having a crisis of conscience to then go out and write a mission statement that he's going to be a better person. No, I don't buy that. Okay, um, I, 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 I do. I think I think that he he's quite open to playing a very very fallible. It's it's almost like a self critique because at the beginning and indeed for most of the movie he is playing a very very narcissistic character who is completely in love with himself and the idea of how does one come to terms with that? So one could see it as a Tom Cruise self critique almost or a very very savvy bit of casting that that, that Cameron Crowe might have recognised that was a, as as we've said it was originally done for Tom Hanks <laughs> Tom Hanks was supposed yeah, to play Tom, this it was role. written it was written for Tom Hanks with Tom Hanks in mind yeah but, um, yeah ended up being Tom Cruise and I mean it'd be a very different movie with with Tom Hanks I'm not sure it'd be a better movie but be more I of don't... like a Frank Capra Frank Capra kind of morality but much more gentle I think it, it would yeah. have been I think yeah. But um, and yeah, I just I I find the 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 use of Secret Garden. So the difference I think with um with with Philadelphia is it was written for Streets of Philadelphia was written for Philadelphia. It feels to me like a producer went up to Cameron Crowe and said, "We've got these seven songs; they could all fit. What do you think?" And he just picked one, and it could have been anybody. It it, it just so happened to be Bruce Springsteen. Whereas who Springsteen is and, and what the, the whole narrative and idea of, of what Bruce Springsteen represents is perfectly within the world of Philadelphia. It isn't as part of Jerry Maguire. It's just incidentally a Springsteen song. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I do like Secret Garden. I don't think it's one of the best, but I think I like it because I like its association with this film and I think it does it does serve its purpose in that it does tie their kind of love arc together and also it's you know this was the period of 
Cameron Crowe's life when he was married to Nancy Wilson, who was in Heart, um, and she she was kind of you know working with him on the soundtrack. And you know it's it's also got Shelter from the Storm on the soundtrack at the end, Bob Dylan. Yeah. So it's it's just that kind of era of kind of songs and soundtracks and things. Not like the most obvious song from that artist, but the artists on there are quite obvious. And I. I do I like Tom Cruise in this and I think it shows a little bit of him that we hadn't seen before and I think he kind of in this period of the 90s where he made this and he made Magnolia and Vanilla Sky um and Eyes Wide Shut it was a really interesting period for him and then he kind of like the egg opened up and out came the human <laughs> and then <laughs> at some point it, yeah. he would climb back in and it closed and kind of what we've had recently is action movie star yeah yeah and none of that hint of there being something a little bit deeper underneath and it's you know it's kind of it's it's kind of fun and it, you know it's got those really memorable things that i don't think i'm trying to think of like a rom-com that's ingrained itself as much as this probably like love actually that, yeah or Br- bridget really, jones or something yeah. maybe mm. yeah um but i was yeah, you're remind... gonna have to come out swinging, mate. I I really really like this film, and I you know I you know what I like about it is that you know, whatever one thinks of Tom Cruise, this is a movie driven entirely by character observation, and I think I I come to talking about this having watched the Marvels, the the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I mean, now I'm not here to to pour scorn on the Marvel Cinematic Universe because I have you know broadly been a supporter of it. <laughs> But when I watch something like Jerry Maguire again, bearing in mind that Jerry Maguire made nearly $300 million back in the mid-90s and there's nary a special effect in it. The only the special effect is the writing. Oh, it's, but it's a huge movie. Don't forget the, that it is a massive movie because of the sheer amount of locations and the sheer amount of people. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's a hundred yeah. speaking roles in the yeah, movie. But, it's it's but, a huge film. Yeah, but I mean, you know, it, what I'm talking about is what's what would sell what would sell the movie back then isn't what would sell movies now, and I kind of find myself pining for films like this. About you know, there aren't any nah. spangly, there aren't any spangly bangles, there aren't any idiots wearing capes with buckets on their heads. There's no one like firing lasers out of their. Oh come on, they wear a like, weird uniform the, in the NFL. <laughs> well, they're superheroes in their own right, uh, but, in, in their own heads. It, it, yeah, it, it's it's a movie driven entirely by slow form character observation and about a guy starting in one place and then through his connection with two very very different other individuals dorothy on the one hand and then rod on the other hand he he learns more about himself through his interactions with these two other people and also we should say as well who always gets overlooked there are a couple of actors that get overlooked this regina king as rod's wife is brilliant she mm-hmm. is really i'd forgotten she was even she's in consistently this. great she is yeah, she's and amazing she's great and bonnie hunt as uh, dorothy's very acerbic very perceptive sister who says what's on her mind so yeah watch out for this guy jerry you know what watch out for him um and she comes I'm, around in the as end. i was watching i was like oh it's the mum from beethoven I, I was like it's sarah from jumanji so um yeah um, i also wanted to shout out um it's this is is gonna be such a deep cut shout out but i'm gonna shout out donald logue who plays a uh, junior yeah. agent um, and the reason i'm gonna do that is that this is now the second week where we have had a character actor from the previous week's episode popping up 
Um, <laughs> so he was uh, he was in Zodiac, who uh, which we talked about last week. So um, he was. Yeah, I, I had to to shout out and acknowledge the the synergy that we had with uh, with him and Jerry Maguire. Yeah, I I just love the chemistry between Tom Cruise and Cuba Gooding Jr. because it it is it is a slow burn. They are at the beginning; it's entirely transactional. Uh, he is the agent. Rod is the football star. They don't like each other, but it's it's almost like a marriage of convenience. They have to be together. Rod agrees to, to stay with, with Jerry, even though he's tempted several times all the way through the movie to go with other people. And then gradually, he Rod's through sheer gregariousness and, and sort of bounteousness of personality, effectively gets Jerry to, to effectively break down. There's several occasions where... You know, he messes with Jerry to basically go, right, come on, Jerry, just come clean. Tell me what you want. And he tricks him into doing it. And eventually a friendship forms. And the reason why the friendship forms is because Jerry likes the way that Rod continually hoodwinks him into saying what what's really on his mind. But that's a way of breaking down, breaking beyond Jerry's superficial sports agent persona into something that's more genuine. And I love that. I think that's brilliant. And you can't know the, the bit when Rod appears to towards the end appears to have the concussion on the football pitch and then gets well, back up okay and yeah all right then that's an amazing scene well do you know why it was amazing for me why because if that happened now where someone had been unconscious on the field of play for let's call it a minute they then get up and start dancing <laughs> they're they're getting carted off to hospital immediately like there believe is not the a chance. Believe in the power of movies. Exactly. With concussion protocols being what they are, there is not a chance that is allowed to happen. And that was exactly where my head went watching that. But, scene. He, but he was he wasn't he wasn't concussed. He started breakdancing. He evidently wasn't. Oh concussed. no, yeah, he was clearly in his right mind. Sorry. Yeah, he um, was. You know, I I had a massive grin on my face during that sequence. Oh, that's brilliant. Rod realizes he he feels like he's been marginalized. By by uh, by all the other more famous sports stars, and then at the end, when in that match at the end, he finally realizes how much people appreciate him and what he stands for. And I love that scene. I think it's great, and it cements his and Jerry's friendship. No, sorry, I really like this movie, and I really like I like all the performances in it. But I like Tom Cruise's performance in it. I I think I think he's great. So do do we think the uh, the the Rod post concussion dancing was the clip that they sent out to Oscar voters? Oh yeah, oh I put <laughs> money on that. I actually, I said that. I said that to myself. I was like, that's the clip. That's the scene that got in the Oscar. Not not the show me the money bit. Um, you know, just the sheer physical exuberance of when he realizes that the crowd are actually on his side and they they willed him to emerge out of out of his concussion. You know, it's, 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 it's just really, it's really funny and really well written when when he's talking nah. to when Jerry's nah. talking to Rod in, in in the in the bathroom, and Jerry Jerry says to him towel, and then Rod just goes, "No, I air dry." Just like little 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 throwaway little moments like that. I mean, a lot of it is down to Cuba Gooding Jr.'s brilliant delivery as much as anything else. <laughs> you know. um, did you know that uh, the apartment was a touchstone for the relationship between? Uh, Audrey and uh, and Jerry, to the extent that when they were looking, because they, they ended up casting the unknown Renee Zellweger at that point. Um, yeah, because loads of other famous people were up for the role, weren't yes, they? And there's, yes. yeah. Um, and 
you know, who who can ever get any chemistry with, with Tom Cruise. Apparently not even his own wife in the next movie he did, but... <laughs> to the extent that their marriage actually destroyed as a result of their chemistry, apparently. Should put um, that caveat in there. <laughs> yes, yeah, allegedly. Yeah. Um, they wanted, they, they put the call out for a Shirley MacLaine-like actress, and then they, they ended up with Renee Selberger. And uh, they, they were trying to hit up, uh, Cameron Crowe was trying to hit up Billy Wilder to play the role of Jerry's mentor. Um, which he ended, he, he, they pursued him quite vigorously. Both Tom Cruise and Cameron Crowe went after Billy Wilder to try and get him to to act in this role, and he just consistently said, "I'm not an actor. I'm not going to do that." You know, they're trying to get, but apparently, um, you know, there was a friendship formed between Tom Cruise and uh, and Billy Wilder that remained for the rest of Wilder's life, and Cameron Crowe has gone to. Um, to use a, he's become a bit of a scholar on on Billy Wilder movies. So, you know, it was a, a nice bit of, of of influence on the movie. The fact that the the apartment is such a touchstone. In in the early office scenes in Jerry Maguire, the two facedness of, of the bureaucracy. When Jerry walks out of his company at the beginning, taking the fish out of the tank with him, there's that brilliant overhead shot of when he and Dorothy walk out. Everyone is kind of frozen in positioning. What just happened there? Did he just walk out? And then everyone, like Terry Gilliam style, everyone gets back to what they were doing. That's that seems very very Billy Wilder to me. Very dry, very ironic. So I, I can understand. Um, I know Karen Crowe is a big advocate of Billy Wilder. I can see that. The, yeah. it, it's all about human ironies. It's all about how people reflect different facets of their personality at the point that they choose to do it. And that's a very Billy Wilder can see. I can totally see the influence. Yeah. I'd rather watch a Billy Wilder movie, though. <laughs> Helen, have you got any final thoughts on both Jerry Maguire and uh, the use of Secret Garden? I mean... It's been fun hearing two extremely different experiences of <laughs> watching Jerry Maguire. And I, I think at the time, like it, it was it was so big and it was so unavoidable. As Sean Whether would say it's... it was a mood. Oh it was, it still slaps. <laughs> I'm not a hundred percent sure that it holds up in everything, but I did re I did enjoy revisiting it. I do like a little bit of Bruce on the soundtrack. It's always nice. <laughs> I, I, any other Bruce song though <laughs> please <laughs> Sean you actually asked me off mic before we started recording can you recommend me any other Bruce songs like Secret Garden and now I understand why you had such a sneery contemptuous <laughs> expression on your face um, I, I did wonder what that meant um, so I, I like the song I, I, I like it you know it's just, yeah um, I thought well. it was quite poignant um, go back and look at the lyrics. They make absolutely no sense. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I agree with Helen. There are things that Jeremy got. Why? Why would someone get married within a couple of days and film their own wedding and play it back on their own <laughs> wedding night? Night? Why would they do that? Yeah, there are weird, very, very baffling contrivances <laughs> like that. And the it, little but... little black book thing with his videotape. Yeah, where they're setting fire to a black book. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that's it. Sean, you were there on the evening of my wedding. We we played Greece instead of watching our own wedding video back. So. No, did we not watch your wedding video back? I was just drunk. <laughs> Maybe I just imagined it. <laughs> no, no, no. We we we, uh, we we performed a massive conga line of which my mother-in-law was leading. Yes. And we we played the Greece Megamix and separated out completely naturally into boys and girls. 
Yes, yeah, we, we did. And it brought back memories of, of that playing at Drink the Bar Drawing University because it was always Grease <laughs> Megamix, uh, the, the Leo Sayer um, uh, that we had in, in university. Anyway. Um, well, spe- speaking of weddings, do you want to guess who I had a cardboard cutout of at mine? <laughs> Is it? I Please don't make it be Tom Cruise. I hope it's Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> it's Bruce Springsteen. Hey. <laughs> Which era Bruce, though? Oh, it was whatever the one we could find on like Getty photos that could be blown up full size to a high enough quality. So, have you still it got probably... it? So, we don't know what happened to it. We went back to the venue the next day to collect Bruce and some other things, and he wasn't there. So, we think that maybe someone walked someone off might with him. Have taken him home, or maybe he became. Um, like what sentient <laughs> there's now a 2D version of Bruce knocking around maybe that's the version of Bruce that sang on the soundtrack for this movie because he obviously isn't very popular so yeah I might be in the minority as far as the secret garden goes but that's amazing I'd, I'd love to know who's got that or who, who walked off with it someone went home with Bruce that night Tried to get him in the Uber. Someone, someone nicked a Bruce standee from a wedding. Yeah, whoever did that was quite proud of that. Um, yeah, um, brilliant. Well, yeah. Um, Jerry Maguire was nominated for four Academy Awards, um, winning one for Cuba Gooding Jr. in Best Supporting Actor. It was nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor for Tom Cruise, really. Um, <laughs> best Screenplay for Cameron Crowe and Best yes, Film Editing. Totally right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, it was, as you mentioned earlier, a barnstorming hit at the box office, budgeted at fifty million, uh, which included Tom Cruise's fee, which is like ridiculous when you consider Tom Cruise at this point in time. He was back to back to back. He did. He literally come off Mission Impossible to then go and do Jerry Maguire, and then when he left Jerry Maguire, he went to do Eyes Wide Shut immediately, to the extent that he had to do ADR in London, where he was shooting Eyes Wide Shut, back to to LA, where they were finishing up jerry Maguire, so he was busy at this point yeah um and this is the worst of those three movies but <laughs> you can't say the, the whole the, you had me at hello the bit when he goes back into the you know the, the divorcees are meeting in dorothy's house and they act as a greek chorus all the way through the movie and he basically has to come clean in front of them he has to stand in front of people speaking honestly rather than speaking bullshit and he starts tearing up and I love that scene. I think Tom Cruise acts that really well and it shows that he's a really, really great actor as well as a really great action star. Sorry, that's just my... my I didn't buy it. <laughs> we also haven't yet mentioned the fact that it was um, partially based on what Jeffrey Katzenberg did at Disney where he wrote a 28-page memo of the direction forward for the company. So thought that was interesting and worth noting. That's the last remaining note I've got on my, uh, on my notepad here. <laughs> Other than that... Uh, we're just left to say thank you very much to Helen because um, you know, we greatly appreciate uh, the fact you've invited us on to, to Flix Watcher and um, we greatly appreciate that you've given us your time uh, to record this episode. It's been fantastic having you on, even if I didn't like one of the movies. Yeah, thanks so much for having me back and letting Bruce come back as Bruce well. Bruce is always welcome. We need to appreciate We'll that. get you back and we'll talk Western stars at some point. um you can catch flix watcher on all of your uh podcasting devices again within the show notes you'll be able to find the social media handles um and you'll be able to find a link to the show directly as well 
um, thoroughly recommend that you, you check out the podcast. And next week, we're going to be talking about Cary Grant movies. So we'll be looking at two Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn screwball comedies. To find out what they are, please do check out the trail episode a little bit later on in the week. But next week, we will be discussing two Cary Grant, Catherine Hepburn screwball comedies. I'm Andy Williams. I'm Sean Wilson. And I'm Helen Sadler. And please continue on listening to another great show from the We Made This podcast network. Bye-bye. Art changes over time. This might feel weird to say because the art itself doesn't physically change, but if we agree that art tells us something about the world around us, what happens to that art once the world has changed? This is the question we try to answer on Movieversaries, a film podcast on the We Made This Network. I'm the host, Bo Nicholson, and in each episode, my guests and I celebrate and reevaluate films on significant anniversaries. We examine films from all over the world through a critical lens to determine if they stand the test of time by exploring their themes, performances, and techniques. This year, our focus is on movies made in years ending in three. So far, we've covered the avant-garde classic Meshes of the Afternoon from 1943. On the other end of the spectrum, how does the technical marvel Jurassic Park hold up 30 years later? We also delve into other iconic films of their time, such as King Kong from 1933, Eight and a Half from 1963, and Return of the Jedi from 1983. From European art house to action, comedy, and horror, if a film is celebrating a significant anniversary, we're discussing it. Don't miss out. Subscribe to Movieversaries now, wherever you get your podcasts.